Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. Episode 9 Justinian, Part 3. Welcome back. In the last lecture, I talked about Justinian's reconquest of Africa and the great general Belisarius's first Italian campaign, which seemingly restored Italy to the empire. The Gothic kingdom was on its knees, its army barely a thousand strong, awaiting only the final coup de grace. But the end did not come. The kingdom was saved only by mistrust and jealousy within the empire. Theodora, having heard how Belisarius had taken the Gothic capital with a ruse after they offered him the throne, was desperately afraid that another general would give in to the same temptation. Her solution was to disgrace Belisarius and then so water down the command that no one general would have the authority to accept such a proposal. And so, instead of one overall commander, she convinced her husband to leave no fewer than five generals in charge. The policy worked. None of the generals were able to gain an ascendancy and in fact seemed more interested in plundering the countryside than bothering with the Goths. This predictably led to mass disenchantment on the part of the population, and within four years the chaotic situation had gotten so desperate that the feckless generals informed their emperor that they were no longer even capable of defending Italy. The situation was even more desperate than they admitted. While Belisarius had been in disgrace, and they had been concentrating on bleeding the country white, a new leader had arisen among the Goths. His name was Totila, and he was everything that the Byzantine commanders were not. Shrewd, compassionate, and young, still in his middle twenties, he preached a message that still seems attractive today. Ignoring the upper classes of Roman society, whose loyalty lay with Constantinople, he appealed directly to the middle class, the blue-collar workers, and the poor, those who felt most oppressed by the brutal Byzantine taxes. As the historian John Julius Norwich said, he promised an end to oppression. The slaves would be liberated, the great estates broken up, the land redistributed among the tenant farmers and the peasants. No longer would Italian taxes be used to maintain a vapid and corrupt court, to build vast palaces a thousand miles away that none of the contributors would ever see, or to pay protection money to barbarian tribes beyond the remotest frontiers of the empire. It was hardly surprising that the people listened to him and followed. Totila's rise was as complete as it was swift, and he found many willing adherents even within the imperial army, some of those sent against him simply refused to fight and joined him, and within a few months he was strong enough to defeat an army 12,000 strong that was sent against him. He continued to demonstrate his tactical superiority against every imperial force, and within the year had completely routed the ablest of the five commanding generals. The imperial holdings continued to evaporate, and by the late summer of 542, virtually all of Italy was under his control. Only four major cities still defied him. Rome, Ravenna, Florence, and Naples, and it was to Naples that he now turned. Predictably, not one of the five generals lifted a finger to help the city, which was slowly being starved into submission. Justinian, realizing the desperateness of the situation, finally appointed an overall commander, but even now was scared of betrayal, and so chose a complete incompetent, who sailed to Sicily and refused to leave it. By May of 543, the starving citizens of Naples, despairing of any relief, surrendered, opening their gates to the young conqueror. For most of them, it was undoubtedly a terrifying experience. After an extended siege, defenders were usually subjected to a terrible retribution in payment for their defiance. Totila, however, was cut from a different cloth, and his actions must have come as a welcome shock. 
With characteristic generosity, he allowed the Byzantine garrison to leave unmolested, even giving them ships and instructing the captains to take them wherever they wanted to go. Then, when storms made the naval journey impossible, he gave them horses and supplies to make the journey overland. Realizing the danger of giving too much food to a starving population, he then confined the citizens of Naples to the city, giving them small amounts of food at first and increasing it daily until they were nursed back to health. The message was loud and clear. Totila was the champion of the people. He was one of them, and it was the corrupt foreign Byzantines who were the real enemy. The native population responded with enthusiasm, and Totila, mopping up all resistance in the south of Italy, confidently started on a long march for Rome. His tide of conquest seemed irresistible. His enemies were in chaos, and no man or army in Italy was able to stop him. But Belisarius had just set sail. The general landed to find his prospects even bleaker than he had assumed. In fact, the entire empire looked on the verge of collapse. While the plague had decimated the populous Byzantine and Persian empires, it had barely affected the more nomadic Moors in North Africa. Taking advantage of the chaos as well as a mutiny by the long-suffering unpaid frontier troops, they invaded, diverting valuable funds and manpower from the Italian campaign. Even worse, the Persians, having recovered from the plague in 544, launched an invasion of Byzantine Mesopotamia. After a few inconclusive battles, they allowed themselves to be bought off at a price of 28,000 gold pieces per year and returned to Persia. Justinian, having secured this tentative peace and under considerable financial strain, found himself unable to pay either the frontier troops or even the mobile armies in the field. On the Persian front, in the past four years alone, some six million gold coins were due, and most soldiers had not been paid for over eight years. His solution, which probably didn't come as much of a shock, but can have helped morale, was simply to cancel payment. With these worries on his mind, and his wife's suspicions ringing in his ears, the emperor cautiously sent Belisarius to Italy with only 4,000 men and without supreme authority. The general would effectively be fighting with both hands tied behind his back. His soldiers were deeply disillusioned, his commanders were uninspired, and the population was sympathetic to Totila and openly hostile to the Byzantines. It was an unwinnable situation. The empire was on the verge of losing Italy, and it would take a miracle to hold those cities left in imperial control, much less conquer new ones. He did his best, however, constantly begging for more troops and writing Justinian wryly that, If the mere sending of Belisarius to Italy were all that were necessary, your preparations for war would be perfect. But if you would overcome your enemies, you must do something more than this. Justinian was still not willing to give Belisarius the overall command, but realizing that something had to be done, he sent a sizable army under the command of a general named John, an arrogant man who had been a thorn in Belisarius' side before. They arrived in Italy virtually the same moment that Totila reached Rome. The city didn't seem likely to hold out for long. Totila controlled all the land between it and the sea, and the commander of the Roman garrison, a man named Bessus, was more interested in selling food at exorbitant rates to the starving citizens than in defending the city. Worse yet, John refused to cooperate with Belisarius and marched off with all the reinforcements to reconquer southern Italy. Left with a pathetically small amount of troops, Belisarius decided on a typically daring plan. While the Roman commander Bessus left the Goths busy with sorties from the gates, he would lead an amphibious attack behind them, with half of his men marching on the southern bank of the Tiber, and the other half sailing upstream in support. And most importantly of all, 
A subordinate named Isaac was to stay back at the camp looking after the reserves, the remaining ships, and his wife Antonina. Under no condition, even if Belisarius himself was reported captured or killed, was Isaac to leave his post. As it turned out, the Roman commander Bessus decided to watch the ensuing spectacle from the walls and didn't lift a finger to help the relieving forces. Unperturbed, Belisarius launched the attack anyway, destroying the Gothic fleet and forcing his way under heavy fire four miles upstream, where he smashed a great chain that Totila had put across the river. He was just about to attack a fortified bridge, the last obstacle to Rome, when a desperate message reached him that Isaac had been captured. To Belisarius, that could mean only one thing. The Goths had attacked the camp and his wife Antonina was captured. He immediately called off the attack and rushed back to camp, only to find his wife and everyone else safe and sound. Isaac, getting bored with the inactivity, had disobeyed orders and attacked the port city of Ostia, getting himself captured in the process. It was the last chance for Rome. A few days later, a group of the Roman garrison, perhaps veterans of the Naples campaign, betrayed the city. Bessus fled, and Totila took possession of the almost deserted capital. According to Procopius, only 500 citizens were left. The city was a shattered ruin and of no real strategic value, and so, after using it as leverage in yet another peace embassy to Constantinople, he knocked down huge gaps in its walls and abandoned it to concentrate on reconquering southern Italy. To his great surprise, Belisarius swept in, repaired the walls, and successfully prevented anyone from dislodging him. This small victory for Belisarius couldn't hide the larger truth. He was no closer to winning the war than the day he had arrived. An effective stalemate had been reached, with neither side strong enough to defeat the other. Belisarius lacked the troops to seriously threaten Totila, and the Goths, for all their numerical superiority, were outgeneraled at every turn by Belisarius. With the war thus dragging on and Justinian never answering his numerous pleas for men and supplies, Belisarius finally sent his wife on his behalf. The reason was clear enough. Though Theodora mistrusted him, she was fast friends with Antonina and would guarantee her a meeting with Justinian. Antonina landed in the city expecting a warm reception. Instead, she found the city covered with the black of mourning and the emperor inconsolable, unable to see anyone. Theodora was dead. She had died just a few days earlier, probably from cancer, and her death left the grieving Justinian unable for the moment to rule. It did, however, have one positive effect. Theodora had been at first a faithful partner to her husband, but in later years her jealousies had prevented him from supporting capable subordinates, sabotaged his religious efforts to unify the churches, and needlessly prolonged the Italian wars by intriguing, often with Antonina, against Belisarius. Even on this latest mission, Antonina had clearly been using her position to increase her influence over her husband rather than help the war effort. But with Theodora gone, Justinian ignored her and simply recalled Belisarius. Finally free of the whispered suspicions, he greeted the general like a long-lost friend, restoring him to full favor, installing him as his closest advisor, and even erecting a gilded statue of him. The second Italian campaign had been five long and frustrating years for Belisarius and upon reaching the capital city, he retired from the military. Though he had an honored place at court, he was never comfortable with the pageantry of court life and soon faded into the background. His work had been thankless and nearly impossible, and yet, against all odds, he had saved the imperial situation and consolidated Byzantine holdings, setting the stage for the final reconquest. To replace him, Justinian chose his cousin and potential successor, Germanus. 
The choice was a good one, but Germanus died of disease before ever setting foot in Italy, leaving the army now leaderless in a potentially disastrous situation. A withdrawal would be a complete victory for Totila. Obviously, replacement had to be found quickly. The emperor, now 69 years old and not wanting any more potential usurpers, made the extraordinary choice to replace him not with a general, but with the most powerful member of his court, the eunuch Narses, himself well into his 70s. After all, the emperor thought, old age had not slowed him down, so Narses should be up to the task. The old eunuch, whose only military experiences were in suppressing the Nika riots and effectively losing the city of Milan, was a superb organizer, quite capable of imposing his will on others. Even more importantly, Justinian, confident that there would be no challenge to his authority, granted his general full powers and an immense army. Where Belisarius had sailed with 4,000 men, Narses sailed with 35,000, and the promise of reinforcements if they were needed. Totila, meanwhile, seems to have been busy using his armies more to force Justinian into a favorable peace settlement than actually trying to conquer the remaining Byzantine strongholds. Realizing the symbolic importance of Rome, however, he did manage to recapture it, after it was betrayed yet again by members of the garrison upset about unpaid salaries. When Narses landed, he brought with him luxuries that Belisarius had never enjoyed, not only men and supplies, but also enough money to pay the Italian salaries, including back pay. Pausing in Ravenna to hand out this money and collect even more men, he headed for Rome, reaching the city and the Gothic army in late June. It was to be the decisive encounter of the war. Totila attacked first with his cavalry, but was unable to break the Byzantine line. Taking heavy casualties from the archers, the cavalry turned and fled, trampling their own troops on the way. Totila himself was killed in the ensuing chaos, along with 6,000 of his troops. It was the end for the Gothic kingdom. They elected another king who managed to hold out for a few months, but he was killed in October of that year, and the surviving Goths left Italy for good. Rome, now little more than a ruin, was restored to Byzantine control, the fifth time it had changed hands in the course of the war. Justinian's greatest dream had been realized, though it must have been bittersweet at best for Belisarius, who had to watch while his old rival had accomplished the victory that should have been his. For Justinian, however, there was even more good news. While the Italian campaign was underway, he had received two emissaries from Spain, asking for imperial assistance in reconquering the territory, an orthodox country ruled by an Aryan king. Almost anyone other than Justinian would have dismissed it as foolhardy. Spain was far away, and the empire had too many other worries. There was a financial and manpower shortage, its armies were tied down, and the lines of communication were already dangerously overextended. Justinian, however, was nothing if not ambitious, and he jumped at the chance. He had virtually no men to spare, a few hundred at most, and to lead the expedition he incredibly chose Liberius, a general who was at least 85 years old. The choice turned out to be a good one, and Liberius proved his worth both as a military commander and a shrewd diplomat. Playing the Romanized populace against the Aryan nobility, he managed to conquer about an eighth of the country, an excellent base of operations, in Justinian's mind, for future conquests. For the last ten years of his life, however, Justinian became more and more involved in the dizzying theological subtleties so characteristic of the Byzantines. Letting the reins of state slip, he concentrated more on the feudal task of uniting the Eastern and Western churches, as well as what he perhaps came to be most remembered for, his grandiose buildings. Augustus had boasted that he found Rome a city of mud and brick and left it a city of marble. Justinian would make the same claim for Constantinople. In 558, the dome of his most important building, the showpiece of his reign, collapsed, 
and he spent the next five years repairing it. This was no ordinary repairing project, for the church was to become unquestionably the most vital thing he built, the beating heart of the empire. There are many examples of his buildings throughout the East, and there are even two famous mosaics of Justinian and Theodora in Ravenna, where you can come face to face with the couple. But this church remains the most powerful vision of his reign, and is still the one place the modern visitor can go to momentarily lift the veil of 1500 years and glimpse Byzantium in its most glorious age. Of the many buildings burned in the Nika riots, the most important one was the Basilica Church called the Hagia Sophia, or Holy Wisdom. The original building was a small structure that had been built by Constantine, but had lasted only 44 years before being destroyed in a riot. A rather uninspired replica had been built 11 years later by the Emperor Theodosius II, and perhaps due to its location next to the Great Palace, soon came to be considered the main church of the capital. With it now in ruins, Justinian characteristically had seen his chance to remake it on a whole new scale. It was to be nothing short of an architectural revolution, the enduring grandeur of the emperor himself frozen in marble and brick. He chose two architects to entrust the sacred duty to. The first, Anthemius, was a Greek mathematician and engineer who had so impressed Justinian with his work on two previous buildings that the emperor had appointed him head of all building projects in the capital. The second, Isidore, had been educated in Egypt and was considered the finest architectural teacher of his day. To these two men, Justinian gave only two instructions. Make this the most spectacular building in the world and build it quickly. After all, he was 50 when they started and wanted to live to see it completed. The two architects did not disappoint, building what some consider the most beautiful church ever built. Their unorthodox work called for a structure unlike any other, a symphony of half domes and cupolas culminating in a square floor plan that supported the largest domed ceiling in the world, 107 feet across. A perfect fusion of classical styles and Byzantine grandeur, it contained elements from all over the empire, eight columns from the Temple of the Sun in Rome, green marble from Ephesus, and precious stone from Sparta, Egypt, Libya, and North Africa. All this was nothing, however, compared with what was inside. The surface of the interior, spanning over four acres, was completely covered in gold mosaic and lit with innumerable gold lamps, leading one stunned observer to comment, the interior is so full of light and sunshine as to suggest some inner radiance of its own. Inside was a 50-foot solid silver iconostasis, a high altar encrusted with gold and precious stones, and an unrivaled collection of relics, including the head and arm of two saints, the true cross, nails and hammer of the passion, the swaddling clothes of Christ, the table of the Last Supper, and the chains of St. Peter. The entire structure was completed in a remarkably short period of time. The architects had assembled two teams of men, 5,000 working at the north end and 5,000 at the south end, and had raced them against each other to speed up the building process. In all, it took five years, ten months, and four days from the laying of the first stone, an incredible achievement. Though completed much later, Westminster Cathedral, by contrast, took some 33 years to rebuild, Notre Dame over 100, and the Duomo in Florence about 230. The Hagia Sophia outshone them all, and at 160 feet high, it was the largest church in the world, a distinction it would keep for the next 700 years. The building was indisputably the most important one in the empire, the spot where every Byzantine emperor was crowned from that day on, and the dazzling interior has overwhelmed visitors for over a thousand years, from the stupefied crusaders to the incredulous Turks. 
Justinian himself, upon entering it for the first time, was heard to say, Solomon, I have surpassed thee. And though most of the gold mosaic has been lost, the artwork vandalized and the decorations removed, the church with its sublime cavernous interior can still overwhelm the modern visitor. The emperor, it seems, was not in the habit of making idle boasts. By the end of his reign, Justinian had not only rebuilt Constantinople, but numerous other cities as well. He had built hundreds of churches and monasteries, ramparts and walls, castles, roads, and fortifications. He had built on an imperial scale and had done so at a time when wars and plagues had devastated populations and drained resources. It was an impressive achievement and had taken almost superhuman energy and daring. He had remade the empire on the grand scale, but the effort had drained him. He never launched the expedition to retake Spain because of a manpower shortage due to the plague and was increasingly forced to rely on the dubious precedent of protection money to keep back the empire's enemies. Faced with a financial crisis, he allowed most of the imperial armies to disband until it had shrunk from 645,000 men to a mere 150,000. The problem with this policy, of course, is that giving in to extortion only leads to more extortion. By 559, a group of Huns called the Kotrigers concluded that the empire was vulnerable and they overran the virtually abandoned frontiers, meeting only token resistance until they were within 30 miles of Constantinople itself. The city was in no real danger. Its famous walls were strong enough to keep out any army, even with only the imperial bodyguard to defend them. But it was deeply humiliating for the destroyer of the Ostrogoths, the man who had reconquered the Western Empire and smashed the Vandals, to allow a motley band of barbarians who no one had ever heard of penetrate his borders and threaten his capital. It was no time for bribes, the Huns must be taught a lesson, and he just happened to have a retired general in the city. Turning as he had so many times in the past, Justinian gave the command one last time to Belisarius. Still in his middle fifties, the general had been living as a civilian and seen no combat for over ten years, but he had lost none of his brilliance. Since there were virtually no troops in the capital, he improvised, creating a force out of guards, veterans, and volunteers. Though they numbered only a few hundred, he conducted a guerrilla campaign, in the course of which he crippled the Hunnish army in a carefully planned ambush. They withdrew, and Justinian, perhaps with a flash of the old jealousy, personally assumed command and bribed them to leave imperial territory. It was hardly a glorious conclusion, but the emperor had reason to celebrate. The empire was at last at peace, and to ensure it stayed that way, he paid a rival barbarian tribe to start a war with the Kotrigar Huns, effectively destroying both of them. It was to be the last act for Belisarius. With one interruption, he was allowed to live the remaining years of his life in peace and respected comfort, dying five years later at the age of 60. He had made Justinian's dreams possible, and he had done more than anyone else to bring them to fruition. Through it all, his loyalty had never wavered, and he never seems to have held a grudge for all the wrongs he had to suffer in silence. He died, I suspect, as he had wanted, out of the limelight and surrounded by friends. Justinian survived him by eight months, dying on November 14th, 565, of a heart attack. He was 83 years old. The following morning, his nephew Justin became the first emperor to be crowned in the cavernous Hagia Sophia and was acclaimed by the people. But for all the magnificent ceremony and pageantry, an age had ended. After 38 years on the throne, Justinian had added more territory to the empire than any emperor but Trajan or Augustus. He reconquered every country his armies attempted to take, 
and his capture of the Ostrogothic and Vandal treasuries were alone enough to finance most of the conquest and holding of Africa and Italy. He was ambitious, willing to take any opportunity that he thought would be good for the empire, and was able to win rich territory in Spain with virtually no cost, in the process making the Mediterranean once again a Roman lake. Though his tax collectors were harsh, he left the empire more efficient and secure, and through his vast public works, incomparably more beautiful. But as time passed, it became clear that rather than the herald of a new and glorious age, he was instead the last of an old one. Never again would the empire be ruled by such a visionary, nor would it ever again be ruled by a man whose first language was Latin. Despite all of his energy and daring, the days of the old Roman Empire were gone and would not return. The bubonic plague had seen to that, killing off one-fourth of the population in its disastrous run, making Justinian's reconquest impossible to hold. The new territory should have made the empire far richer and more secure, but instead, with the disease raging, they increased the frontiers while reducing the manpower to defend or pay for them. To maintain such an expanded empire with diminished resources would have required the ability and energy of both a Justinian and a Belisarius, two luxuries it would never again have. As the historian John Julius Norwich said, more than any other monarch in the history of Byzantium, he stamped the empire with the force of his own character. Centuries were to pass before it emerged from his shadow. Join me next time as I discuss the rise and fall of Heraclius, a man many thought would be the last emperor, but who instead, though he had to fight for virtually every inch of his empire, finally put an end to the Persian threat. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, the forgotten Byzantine empire that rescued Western civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.